Wells counting the Omer. We are two weeks in to counting the Omer, and why are we doing this? I mean, other than God said to. That's certainly a good reason. But does it strike anybody that this whole procedure is really strange? What you do is you wait until the day after the Sabbath, then you start counting. You count a Sabbath of Sabbaths plus one, then you have a feast. I mean, there's all sorts of ways God could have said, do a feast. But he has this procedure where you have to count. And you specifically do have to count, by the way, and you should all be counting every day. Why? Now, counting the Omer is given after the sin of the golden calf. And that's kind of important. Counting the Omer is not one of the things that is given in Exodus 20 through 24, when God gives all of the laws through Moses that happen when they're all standing at Sinai. And you have all sorts of things. You have torts, you have the Ten Commandments, of course. And there's all sorts of detailed laws. This is not one of them. Counting the Omer is not included in that bunch. It only shows up after the sin of the golden calf. Now, there's two sequences in Scripture of seven times seven plus one, which is what the Omer is, right? You count a Sabbath of Sabbaths, so you count seven Sabbaths, and you add one. There's another sequence in Scripture that goes seven times seven plus one. Yovel, Jubilee. And in that case, you count seven years, seven times, plus one. So it's exactly the same sequence, except instead of going days, you now go years. And oh, by the way, Yovel is given after the sin of the golden calf. Yovel is not one of the laws that is mentioned when everybody's standing at the foot of the mountain. It's only given after the sin of the golden calf, and it's only given in the context of the tabernacle. So what I'm going to suggest to you is the two sequences, which only show up one place in Scripture, two in the case of the Omer, but Yovel only shows up one place, and that's in Leviticus. And also... Counting the Omer only shows up in two places, once here in Leviticus and then once again repeated in Deuteronomy. Now, the other thing that's really weird, the 50th year of Yovel does not begin on either the first of Nisan or the first of Tishri. It begins on Yom Kippur. Are you beginning to get some sense of the weirdness of all this? I certainly hope you are, because it's really strange. The other thing is Omer is not mentioned. We're counting the Omer, right? Omer is not mentioned anywhere except in the context of manna. And it shows up in one little paragraph in Exodus when it says, you shall go out and you shall gather an Omer. And the day before Shabbat, you gather two Omers, so you have enough for Shabbat. You gather one, five days. Then on the sixth day, you gather two. And then you don't gather on the seventh. And that's the only place the word Omer is mentioned in the entire Bible. It is, in fact, not mentioned when we're told to count. Seven times seven plus one. Omer's not mentioned. So why do we call it counting the Omer if it's not mentioned in Scripture? One of the things that Moses sort of tucks in there when we're talking about the manna is, oh, by the way, an Omer is a tenth of an ephah. That's your link. What are the daily offerings? The daily offering is, of course, a lamb, but 
during the week you bring a tenth of an ephah of flour. And on Shabbat you bring two tenths. Ooh. So what is being talked about there is he's bringing us back to the giving of the manna. Because the grain offerings that you bring with the daily offerings are exactly the same as the amount of manna that you gathered, and the sequence is exactly the same. So he's linking those things. What I'm asserting is that you have got to look at the counting of the Omer and Yovel together to understand what both of them mean. Because part of the information is given in the counting of the Omer, and part of the information is given in Yovel. So you got to sort of smoosh them together to get the whole deal. The other thing is, why is God having us do this? And I will suggest is it's for our benefit. You know, God knows when Shavuot's going to be, right? He orders the stars. He can figure it out. So the fact that he's having us go through and count these things is somehow for our benefit. And that's what I want to get to with you today. So that as you go through counting the Omer for the rest of the time up until Shavuot, you have some understanding of what this is supposed to be doing for you. Now, when you all came into the Messianic stuff, you're used to seeing lots and lots of these things that you never saw before in the Sunday church. And you know, well, why are we doing that? I don't know, because God said to. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to do this stuff, so I'll do that. I don't understand why, but I'll do it. And that's good. That's a good thing. I'm not knocking that whatsoever. What I'm suggesting, however, is you get more out of it if you understand what it is God is trying to do with you. Okay, so let's go to 7 times 7 plus 1. Starting with 7. 6 represents the created order. God created the world in 6 days. Everything in creation has 6 sides. Left, right, top, bottom, front, back. So the 7 then represents one beyond the natural created order, and of course that's where we meet God. That's when Shabbat is, when we're supposed to be in the presence of God and meet with Him. The other sequence of seven that we have in Scripture is seven years. And again, you have six plus one. So you have six years that you'll tend your garden and plow and reap and sow and all that kind of stuff. And then you have a year when you don't do any of that. And oh, by the way, God does not ask you to take that on faith, does he? What does God say? In year number six, I will increase your crop so that as you're going into the seventh year, you don't have to have any fear about what you're going to eat because I'm going to provide it for you ahead of time. So if this is not a test of faith, what must it be a test of? Greed. Are you going to be greedy and plant that seventh year so that you get the bumper crop on six and then you get an extra one and you get to increase your wealth? No, you don't do that. What you do is you plant six. I'll give you the double portion so you don't have to take it on faith. But then what I want you to do is rest and not be greedy. So seven both in creation, seven days, the weekly Sabbath, and then this seven-year Shmeta cycle where you have six years and then a year of rest. So seven times seven, I'm going to suggest, is an intensification of seven. And plus one is one beyond that list. So what I'll suggest to you is seven times seven plus one is a new beginning. 
what you have is the completion of a cycle plus one, so you then have a new beginning. What happens on your belt? Your debts get forgiven, but that also happens at the end of the seven-year cycles. The gland gets its people back. So what happens on Yovel is, let's say you have just made a complete mess of your life, and you have been sold into slavery for debts, you got nothing, you had to sell your patrimony, and what you have then is a global reset where everybody goes back to the land that he was given under Joshua. So the deal there is no matter how badly you have messed up, once in a lifetime, you get a reset. Why does it start on Yom Kippur? Why doesn't it start on the first of Nisan when every other year starts? Or the first of Tishri or Rosh Hashanah when every other year starts? Why does it start on Yom Kippur? It starts on Yom Kippur because it is a reaction to the sin of the golden calf. When Moses comes down with the second set of tablets, it is on Yom Kippur. And what that says is, no matter how big a hash you have made of your life, there is still forgiveness and restoration. That's why it starts on Yom Kippur instead of one of the other New Year's. is because God is putting a punctuation mark, exclamation point, your reset, no matter how badly you have screwed up, is going to happen on Yom Kippur at my command. And think about the sequence. Now we're going to another sequence here. What you have is you start with the Exodus. When God kills the firstborn of Egypt, takes them through the mikvah, brings them up on the other side of the Red Sea, takes them into the wilderness, and we have then a 50-day journey that goes from Egypt to Sinai. Seven times seven plus one. Immediately after that, Moses goes up 40 days to get the first set of tablets, right? And next thing you know, you find the bride and the honky-tonk. We have the sin of the golden calf. So the next thing that happens is Moses goes back up, get a second set of tablets, and that shows up on Yom Kippur. Now look at that. So you have God takes us out of slavery, brings us into his presence, speaks his word to us, we then turn around and make a golden calf. God then brings us back and restores us on Yom Kippur. And oh, by the way, that's when Yavel starts. You begin to see the message here? There is always the possibility of forgiveness. I mean, you can hardly do it worse. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, Moses and I are going to go up here and talk for a while. What did you just do? Oh, okay, fine. We'll start over. And that's the whole point of Yovel. That's the whole point of Yom Kippur is start over and do it again. And every one of us goes through that. I don't know anybody here, certainly not me, who doesn't sin. We all do. But what he's telling us here is there is always the possibility of forgiveness and restoration. So... This whole process starts with slavery. It starts in Egypt. What does Paul, by the way, say about sin? You can be a slave to sin, can't you? And what we have been reduced to when we are slaves is we have been reduced to property. We are somebody else's property. Now, I'm going to throw a whole bunch of symbols at you here. 
what we're going to try and do is sort these out with respect to counting the omer. Which harvest happens when you start the counting of the omer? It's the barley harvest. And in fact, you all have been in this long enough that you know that one of the things that Israel does as spring is coming is they send people out throughout the country to find out if there is some ripe barley. And if there isn't going to be any ripe barley for first fruits, then they stick an extra month in the calendar to give the barley time to ripen. So the whole calendar is predicated on when is the barley going to be ready for offering after Passover. Anybody know what most people feed barley to? Animals. It's animal food. It's grown for fodder. In biblical times, barley was considered animal food. It was less desirable than wheat. It is certainly less nutrient-dense, so you need more barley, and it just isn't considered as good food. So barley is animal chow. And, oh, by the way, barley is also slave chow. You want your slaves to be strong and economically useful, but you don't give your slaves champagne. You don't spend the best that you have on your slaves. So barley is animal chow and slave chow. And what I said earlier is you can become enslaved to sin. So how did we get to become slaves? They sold their brother into slavery. They also mistreated Hagar. So the idea is they go down to Egypt and they become slaves, which is what they had done to their brother. So we're down there because of our sins. I will suggest to you that Slavery comes from listening to your animal nature. Why do I say that? How did we get into this mess to begin with? Eve was listening to an animal, wasn't she? She was listening to an animal. The snake was talking to her. I don't have any problem with it literally happening, but it's also a metaphor. And what happens is, instead of listening to what God said or listening to what her husband said, who was the last one that God talked to in the Bible, she listens to an animal. And she gets talked into doing something by an animal. And what I will suggest to you is the animal side of you, the flesh, is what Paul calls it, right? Paul calls it the flesh. And if you listen to the flesh, what the flesh will do is lead you into sin. Not that the flesh is bad, it's just the flesh wants what it wants. And what the flesh wants is not always appropriate. Sometimes it is, but not always. So what we are is in slavery because we listen to our animal nature. We are eating slave food, and we are eating animal food, which is barley. And those all happen around Passover. So what we now have is a process by which we walk through the desert for 50 days, and at the end of that, what kind of offering do we bring? Two loaves of wheat bread. Wheat is people chow. So we walk through the desert for 50 days, starting off with the animal side of us, and we wind up at Sinai eating people chow and in the presence of God. What's happened is God has reached into Egypt where we are somebody's property, where we are eating slave food, and without any help from us, thank you, has brought us out of slavery, out of Egypt, and has brought us through a process 
where we stand in his presence at the foot of the mountain. And what I will suggest to you is coming into the presence of God is a process. It is not a single event. It takes time. And what God is doing is saying, in this case, it takes you 50 days. And I want you to count those days and to anticipate what happens at the end, which is you get to eat bread made with wheat, and oh, by the way, made with leaven. It's the only time leavened bread is brought into the tabernacle is at Shavuot. And you get to stand in my presence. So what we've done is we have moved from being slaves to being free. And I will suggest to you that the Sunday church, which is sort of looking at the Torah as bondage, slavery. You heard that from a Sunday preacher? I will suggest they've got it just exactly backwards. The Torah is freedom. Because, again, what does Paul say? You're going to serve somebody. You can either serve the flesh and Satan and sin, or you can serve God. But it is not the case that you're going to be autonomous. You're going to serve one or the other. And if you choose not to serve God, then the default is yourself, which is operated by Satan, or influenced by Satan is a better way to say that. What we do then is move from slavery to freedom, which is when we receive the Torah. Let's go back to Yovel. What happens on Yovel? You move from having lost everything that you have. You may even have become a slave, because that's one of the things that can happen to you in Israel if you make a complete hash of your life and you can't support yourself. You get sold into slavery and you get put with somebody who can support himself with the idea being that you'll figure it out. But what you're doing then is moving from slavery to freedom. You are moving from slavery to an inheritance. Isn't that what you get back on your vow? Your inheritance? You have inherited this piece of land starting with Joshua, and it has gone through your family, and you have lost your inheritance because you have listened to the animal side of your nature, and God has moved you through a process of seven times seven plus one to restore your inheritance. Now, let's go to the restating of this in Deuteronomy, because Moses says a couple of things that are really important there. So I'm in Deuteronomy 16, and I'm starting in verse 9. You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is put into the standing grain. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. In other words, it's one of the Feasts of Ascent, and you don't go up empty-handed. said in another way other places. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God shall choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Now notice what we just said. What is the reason for this? What are you supposed to remember? that you were a slave. Every one of us is the descendant of a slave. And by the way, if you get really upset about being a descendant of a slave, you got no place in God's kingdom because we all are. 
the first thing he says is, don't get too uppity about your current status because you used to be a slave. Remember that. And in remembering that, what you need to do is you look upon the people who are less fortunate than you are, the fatherless, the orphan, the poor, and you need to treat them well because the place where they are now is where you came from. And oh, by the way, you can always go back. So as you're dealing with the less fortunate around you, you need to deal with them from the perspective of, that's where I came from. But the first thing he says is even better. Rejoice. You are commanded to rejoice. Now, how do you do that? I mean, if you're having a bad day and you're feeling kind of grumpy, how do you, how do you rejoice? Well, two things. One is go ahead and do it with your body and your mind will follow. It's okay. That, that's the way it works. If you not feeling particularly good about stuff and you're feeling grumpy, just go ahead and start doing things that go with rejoicing and your mood will change. That, that part's easy. But what he is more saying is, I have taken you through a process and I have taken you from being a slave and I have brought you into my very presence. I have taken you from being property of somebody else and I have brought you into fellowship with me. That's worth rejoicing about. And what he's saying is, I understand that as you go through this life, you are not going to be consistently standing at the foot of Mount Sinai rejoicing in my presence. That isn't going to happen. None of us can do that. No matter how far you fall, no matter how deep into slavery you get, there is a process by which I will redeem you. Rejoice. That's what he's saying. And what we're doing during this time of Omer is we are walking through that process to remind us of where we came from, of what we had lost, and of what God has done for us, and we are moving toward the place where we're going to stand in His presence again. And that's worth rejoicing.